Galatians chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning, a brief recap. If you've been with us for a while, you kind of know the stream, you know the thread, you know the thought that Paul has in this letter that he writes to these church is, this church and churches rather in the area of Galatia, and kind of the Asia Minor area. Paul writes this letter with astounding kind of vitriol, almost anger, almost deep frustration as he longs to tell this group of people, these believers that he's known, that he's met, that he's experienced life with, and that he's seen come to know Jesus. He wants them to understand that to depart from anything that is the gospel is truly hopeless. And he has this deep fear because there's this group of people, these agitators, these Judaizers that have come into the church in a very insidious way and kind of begin, begun to tell believers in this area, hey, you know, it's one thing to have Jesus, but to really have Jesus, to really be a part of the faith community, to really have a relationship with God, you've also got to take on the Old Testament mark of covenant in circumcision. There's certain laws, there's certain things that you got to observe, there's certain things that you have to do to really truly be a part of the faith. And Paul is deeply concerned that this group of believers is going to fall into the trap of accepting these things that they might do to prove themselves and lose the identity and the heart and the reality of the gospel that Christ has done it all for them. And that their righteousness has come only by grace alone, through faith alone, and what Jesus has done, not their good works. So throughout this letter, Paul's done a number of things. He's explained to them the reality and preached to them very succinctly and clearly the truth of what Christ has done. In chapter 2, we go in the latter, latter part of chapter 1 and chapter 2, we see Paul tell his story. Tell his story of how Christ has transformed and changed him. And then Paul really launches into a deep, explanation and understanding of what it means to be justified, what it means to be viewed as righteous, to be made right with God, is that Romans 5 passage that we saw earlier, have peace with God, that it comes only through faith, not good works, not obeying the law to the letter of doing things, but instead trusting in Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of the law. All of that really building up to this point where Paul, in so many ways, describes what it means to be in Christ. And what the implications are, not only for our lives, but for the lives of others around us and the entirety of the world. This is a huge passage and it, it legitimately pains me that we're going to be here for like 30 minutes. I want to be here for three weeks or three months because it's so rich and so full. But in these moments, as we read verses 1 through 15 together, look closely to the Word of God. Ask the Spirit to illuminate your heart, and let's experience together the beauty of our faith this morning. This is Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. It's going to go all the way through 15. It says this, For freedom... Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves 
eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if, brothers, I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is the word of the Lord. Together we say, thanks be to God. What if you won the lottery? What if you like really won the lottery? Now, this is something that like sounds like a silly question maybe, but I think it's like a question that we've all thought about. Maybe there are those of you who haven't gotten to this point in life where you have these things that arrive, they're called bills, and you haven't thought about that yet, right? But for those of us that deal with the ramifications of life, I think there are a number of us that have thought about Now, what would it be like to win the lottery? What would I do? I've seen this question posed to people in social settings. I've seen it posed kind of as like an icebreaker in community groups. I know that tons of companies use this question to really try to get to the heart of people that they're interviewing. Like in a a C-suite process, they're asking people, man, what would you do if you won the lottery? Why? Because it would reveal in so many ways the deepest desire, in a sense, that one has. Environment, I think, helps kind of guide how we would answer this question. So this morning, if I were to poll all of you and say, what would you do if you won the lottery? I truly believe that the place in which you sit would inform you to say, you know what, I think I'd probably, you know, that give you 90 things sounds great. I'd probably give it to that, right? I'd probably give it to charity. I'd probably do some benevolent things with it. But I would also say, if you like found yourself in the parking lot somewhere, like to the Publix, and you walk by a brand new 2022 whatever type of vehicle, you might say, if I posed you a question there, you might say, you know what, I kind of want one of those. Or if you're at the lake or you're at the beach, someone asks you, you might say, I kind of want that boat. Sometimes our environment plays into that. Because here's the thing. When people think about winning the lottery, they think about money. They think about winning money. They think about getting this financial resource. But I think, in fact, I, can just, I think I can boldly say this. I know that that's not the point, and that's not what people really want. Ultimately, that money gets them something else. It gets them something more. And the thing that it gets them is freedom. Freedom from responsibility. Freedom from debt. Freedom to live with a brand new blank slate, start over, do whatever you want, whenever you want. It turns like a two-week notice into like a two-second notice. Your two weeks notice is a text message now. You're never going there again. And anything that you left in that office can be replaced now. You're never walking back at that door, right? 
Winning the lottery isn't about money. Ultimately, it's about freedom. To literally be totally free to experience whatever, whenever, however. And it's not a perfect analogy, but that freedom from anything that would tie you down is in one sense the kind of freedom that Paul is talking about in this moment. Total, uninhibited freedom. Paul wants these Christians to know that in a drastic way, in a radical way, they are free from sin. They are free from death. They are free from hell. They are free from the devil. They are free. They're absolutely and totally free to live in this beautiful, loving relationship with God the Father through Christ the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells them. That they're absolutely, totally free. And that they're not just freed from something. They're actually freed into something more than they can imagine. This is the thrust of what Paul is driving at in this chapter in Galatians. And we're going to see three big truths. These are the three big things we hope to see today. One, in Christ we are truly free. We're truly free. Second, the Christian life is one of response, not requirement. The Christian life is one of response, not requirement. And third, in a way that the Galatian Christians are struggling with, that you and I struggle with, because we have all these measuring sticks and all these litmus tests to tell us in so many ways what it means to be faithful, what it means to be a good Christian, what it means to know that I'm actually following God's will. Paul will really detail and help us see that love is the litmus test of our faith. This is the third thing. Love is a litmus test of our faith. So one, in Christ, we are truly free. Two, the Christian life is one of response, not requirement. Three, love is the litmus test of our faith. All right, let's dive into these verses and quickly walk through contextually what Paul is saying and how he's saying it and what he's driving towards to help these believers really feel free. Because for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, and I've felt this and sensed this, that we've walked through so many things theologically in Galatians that Paul has preached about the purity of the gospel, that he's explained his story and what it means to have be, to be affected, to be transformed by the Spirit of God, to enjoy the life life that is in Jesus, all these kind of things. And quite often, I think you and I have walked away week to week saying, what do I do now? And I've week after week tried to encourage us and, and, and really impress upon us that the goal is to just believe the beautiful truth of the gospel. And this week, all of us in, in, our, in our desires are going to be satisfied. We're going to walk away today with tangible things to do, all right? So just from the jump, we're going to be happy with that. But Paul wants to make clear that ultimately he knows that we want to know what to do. And he says that it's not about that. That it's not about that. And it starts in verse 1 with this phrase. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Sounds redundant. It might even sound silly. It might even sound confusing. So what does it mean to be free? Well, it's so that you're free. You ever had somebody, like, you ask for a definition of something, or you ask for a question of something, they describe it with the same word? Like, if you ask me what a hamburger is, and I'm like, you know, it's kind of like a burger, like, that's frustrating, probably. One, because I'm just wasting breath. Two, because I'm giving you zero clarity. 
I've given you no insight, no definition into what this really is. So what is Paul doing when he said it's for freedom that Christ has set you free? Because he knows that the tension for these Galatian believers is to say, okay, well, if it's not circumcision, if it's not the law, if it's not taking on this extra thing, then what's the next thing that I do? What is that thing that i got to do next? That's where we normally go as people. But the purpose, Paul says, of freedom is to be free. What does that mean? Ultimately, this is what he's saying the experience of the Christian life is. Not to be bound by obligation, but to be awake to opportunity. Not another job to do. Not a different job than following the Old Testament covenant Mosaic law to the T. Not a different job than that. But instead, the joy of being free to live in Christ. It's vastly different. This is not just we're moving from one set of rules to another. Instead, into total freedom where God's going to allow us to be free. And as we walk down to verses 13 through 15 of this, you can see where Paul's going with, with this and understand that belief in the gospel, that a recognition of freedom in Christ will ultimately yield a response. But it's not one that's demanded. So we're going to get to see the beauty of obedience in that. Verse 2, look at what Paul describes surrounding circumcision he says paul or he says look i paul say to you that if you accept circumcision christ will be of no advantage to you two things really happening here one he's doing this emphatic thing where he says look you ever have your kids say look hey mama daddy look look at me look at me watch me do this thing we're at one of our children is at this age where we watch everything and i've seen like some of the most hilarious videos because you like watch your kid and they're really telling you like look at me look at me and then they just do something like this right or they, like, they just do the most silly, ridiculous thing. And they're like, look at me, see me, pay attention to me. Paul in this moment is clamoring for their attention. He's walked them all the way to this point, And he's saying in a dire way, not just, not just hear these words, not just hear some truth or hear some information for you, but instead turn your eyes to this. Like, let me take your head and point you directly to this reality. That if you take on circumcision, if you take on this life in the law, if you submit to circumcision in this way, that you define your salvation by obedience to it, that you're making nothing of the cross. That Jesus Christ did not accomplish what he intended to do. That in effort... By what you're doing, you're stating very clearly that it is indeed not finished. And that there's work for you to do to add to what the cross lacks. So Paul is angry. He's passionately saying to these people that he loves, don't you understand? This is, this is a better way perhaps to describe advantage. What we see advantage here in the English text is really something more akin in the Greek to value. It will be of no worth, it will be of no treasure, it will be of no passionate need and, and, and relationship with. Paul is saying, I'm showing this to you, it's right before your eyes. You've trusted in Christ, don't depart from him in this way. And you got to understand socially where these Galatian Christians are, many of them have come from a pagan background. 
So there's pagans that have had ceremonies and rituals and worship, and they've left that, and they've come to Christ. Their eyes have been opened. They've, they've entered relationship with Jesus. And so they're not in that pagan world anymore. They're not worshiping or looking to local deities and doing things in this day and time that would allow them to connect with the culture. But these Judaizers, these people who are agitators, they come into the church offering in some ways a place of belonging. Because the Jews, even though they were different than the Greco-Roman society in so many ways, they were an accepted subculture of sorts in this society. So these Galatian Christians are basically being told, you don't fit in with the world. And these Judaizers are saying, but you can fit in over here with us if you just take circumcision, if you'll just do this, then now you can be a part of us in a deeper way, and it'll be much more akin to you being with us and not stuck in no man's land. And they're tempted. They're really actually tempted to do it. And this is why Paul is screaming at them. It's right here before you. Don't you understand? Don't take on this ritualistic thing in order to earn salvation. Instead, trust in what Christ has done for you. And then he expounds in verse 3 by saying, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. Paul is saying to them very clearly, you have not read the fine print because they haven't showed it to you. You ever been at a spot where you sign up for a service, where you buy an item, and you bit off more than you could chew? You kind of didn't know what you bargained for? Anybody ever had that experience of like first time, you know, you're, you're on your own, you're getting your cell phone or you're paying for your cell phone, and you get all of these fees and you don't understand what these fees are, and you don't understand how they exist, and you wish that you had thought about, man, I should start a company or do this thing where I could just charge fees and nobody knows what it means and we're just going to rake it in, right? Maybe not the healthiest place to go, but look, you do this every time you buy concert tickets. Every time. The ticket's like $35, and when you check out, it's $147.50, Right? Because there's all this extra stuff. There's this fine print. And this is what Paul is saying to them. That they've not told you the truth of what it means to take on circumcision. And to, to say this is what it means to actually be accepted into the community of faith. To do this one thing is not just this one thing. He's saying that the law to be bound to it. To say that I'm going to use the law. Not as it's intended, as the spirit of loving one another, as we'll get to later in the passage. But if I take the law as a means of earning my salvation, it's not just circumcision. It's every other piece, part, and parcel of the law. Everything. And so Paul is saying, you don't understand. This is not what God has intended, and you're getting more than you bargained for. These people are not being truthful with you. And then it gets heavier. Verse 4, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. So what is Paul saying? He's saying that mixing of works and grace is not the way. It's all or nothing. John Calvin would say it in this way. Whoever wants to have a half Christ loses the whole. You can't take on part of Jesus. This isn't I'm going to take on the gospel as I've known it, but I'm also going to add this works-based righteousness thing. I'm going to do some law stuff to really help and assure myself or prove myself to myself and ultimately to the Lord to have salvation. No. 
That is not how this works, Paul says. You trust in Christ fully and completely for what he's done for you. And you remember that it's he who made peace with God for you by the blood of his cross, not by your works. Now, look, we see that phrase, you've fallen away from grace. And I think a number of us who've read passages like this probably go to the place where we say, well, what does this mean? Does this mean that Christ's life, death, and resurrection is ineffectual for these people in the sense that they've fallen away and now they have effectually lost their salvation? That is not what Paul is saying. Ultimately, he's stating this. He's saying that these believers are tempted to forsake the doctrine of grace that's ultimately going to lead the church and the people around them into theological ruin. To move away from the grace, which is the one thing their life in Christ came from. They came to Christ because of grace, through faith. And Paul's using that idea to help them reinforce that it is not by works. In verse 5, he says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. And so what Paul is saying in this moment is really a look forward. He's saying, look, this life in this moment, our present reality is we're looking to the future that comes. We're looking to what it means to, to, to ultimately be truly, fully restored, even as Caxton spoke of this morning, to have full, complete, uninhibited freedom in relationship with God perfectly apart from sin forever. But one of the things that you'll notice as you read the scriptures is not that just we look to the future with hope, but anytime the future is talked about, you're going to see that the present is not ignored. Paul describes how you and I are to live in this moment as we look for the hope to come. Look at verse 6. It's the first mention of love in so many ways that you're going to see in Galatians. And it comes at a pivotal point, and Paul says this, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. This is all building toward kind of verses 13 to 15 of what it means to really live in love. But right here, Paul very clearly describes a perfect tense word. And he says that love is not a feeling. It's not this like butterfly thing that happens inside of us. It's not something that we would confuse for infatuation. Instead, it's actually something that takes place in an active sense. It's action. Love is action. Love is choices. Love is commitment. Love is fidelity. Love is something that we do, not just something that we feel. How do we know that? Paul says, but only faith working through love. So this is where we understand, we get the recognition that the freedom that we have in Christ yields this response out of us that love comes from, it works, it comes out of faith. And that ultimately that that is the main thing that we ought to see in others, that the world ought to see in us, that this is the picture of what it means to know Jesus. That our faith is not this cerebral thing, right? Like, like we have people and we say, well, I, you know, I have faith, but that's like really kind of a personal thing. You know, that my, my faith is like a, a personal thing in the sense of, you know, I don't really like talk about my faith or I don't really like, I don't really share it with other people. It's just not an option. That's just not real. 
Our faith is such that it works through in love where it can't be contained. It can't be held. Other people must experience it. We must live in such a way that our faith in what Christ has done is actually lived out. Love is action, not feelings. Paul's going to build to this in a deeper way as we move forward. Verse 7, Paul uses some stuff here that's like really, really helpful for believers in this time. And he uses some stuff in life, some analogies, some correlations that really work in their society. In verse 7, he talks about running well. And we know that Paul is one who used athletics and particularly racing, in a sense, to really drive home the endurance aspect, the, the, the finality aspect of the Christian life by running to an end, by reaching a destination, by running passionately. And he describes in this moment something really specific. He says, you are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? And that word hinder ultimately means to be, what he's saying there, it means to be cut in on. And so you need to understand that athletics were revered in the Greco-Roman world in this time. So racing is something that would be really prominent in the sense of it would be very respected and it would be very entertaining and people would love it. But there were very specific rules about how to race. So we're not to NASCAR yet. So there were big rules about racing in this day. So much so that like we use a phrase maybe like Rubbin's racing, right? Not so much in the Greco-Roman world. And here's what I mean by that. You, as you raced, you were not allowed to cut in on or hit or kind of trip other people. This is not like the marathon sense in which there's all these people kind of bunched in at the start, right? And everybody's hitting each other as they go. Paul's saying something really specific here. He's saying this, that these people who seem to be acting like they're telling you the truth surrounding circumcision and keeping the Mosaic law and saying you can only be a part of God's community if you've done these specific things in this specific way, he's saying that they've cut in on you. That they're running out ahead of you. They're saying, come follow me. We know, but they've cheated. They've done something illegal. They've hindered you by cutting in on you, by by touching you, by rubbing in on you in a way that is not allowed. Why is he saying all this? Because he says this in verse 8, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. This is not what it looks like to be given truth, to be given love, to be given life. It wouldn't be done in a way that's unethical where people are cheating. And then he describes in verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Look. A little goes a long way. And there's a billion phrases in our world that we understand this with, right? Like, like my parents' generation would be like Brill Cream, like a little dabble do you, right? For most of us, it's really like a bad apple spoils the bunch. These are some of the things and kind of the ideas around what Paul is saying. And he's using something in their world like bread to say, if you use, if you use a little leaven, it's going to go a long way. And this is what Paul describes as he's... he's viciously attacking on the offensive this idea that you would get salvation apart from anything other than faith in Christ. But he's saying that even if there's just a few people in the Galatian church that are espousing circumcision as salvation, it's got to be rooted out. He has confidence, though. Look at verse 10. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty. So in the midst of all of this, in Paul's frustration, he still has confidence about what God is going to do in the life of these people. 
I want you to read down through verse 11 and 12 and to probably some of the most challenging language in this text. He says, but if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. So to preach circumcision is to remove the offense that is necessary of the cross that reveals to us our brokenness and our need for Christ. And then in verse 12, he says, I wish that those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Now, this is incredibly strong language, and with regard to circumcision, there is this understanding of, of a mark or a cut. And what Paul's saying here has a lot of duality to it. He's ultimately saying, when is enough enough? When is the law enough? Who's going to keep the law the best? So if circumcision is a picture of being a part of a community that keeps the law, are, people, are we just going to keep cutting? Is it going to be death by a thousand cuts because people are going to continue to attempt to approve themselves as one who actually deserved to be in God? He's doing something rather poignant here, and he's saying that ultimately you keep cutting and you cut it off. He's also referring to a verse back in Leviticus chapter 29 that really describes how God's people are not to be with those who would do such a thing. It's incredibly heavy language, and this is what Paul is saying in this moment, that anybody who teaches you what's not true, who turns you away from the gospel, I wish they would be cut out of covenant. Not cut into covenant, but cut out of it, and not a part of it, because these are lies. Now, verses 13 through 15, as Paul brings this portion of the letter to a close, he describes that freedom from earlier. For you were called to freedom, brothers. And then he gives some very specific instruction. He says, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So what is Paul saying in this moment? What is he describing? He's saying you're not just freed from these things, that the Christian life is such that now I'm actually freed into areas that I never got to experience before. When I wasn't in Christ, I was constantly worried about my sin or the wrath of God, or I was concerned only with myself. But now I'm free from that. I'm free from the bondage of those things. And what does that mean? That means I'm free to experience life with God the Father, through Christ the Son, by the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's life. I get to live in that freedom. And do you know what it means for me? I don't have to worry about me anymore. This is where Martin Luther would describe the freedom of the Christian, that the goal is not such that I'm, I'm doing things in a way that I think about me, but I'm thinking about others. I'm thinking about neighbors. I'm thinking about people that I live with. I'm thinking about ultimately and the people he's talking to. He's saying, look, church, view yourself as brothers and sisters of one another. Look to other needs. Care about others. Demonstrate the faith that you have through love. This is a life of response because Paul knows it can go the other way because he acknowledges, he says, don't use this as an opportunity to serve the flesh because he knows people with freedom will be really tempted, even believers, people who are freed from the eternal weight of sin yet wrestle with its impact now. Think about Romans 7. Think about what Paul would say. I do what I don't want to do and I don't do the things that I do want to do, right? 
Paul acknowledges our propensity, our tendency to try to serve the flesh. I want to connect back to the lottery illustration because I spent some time this week reading about what happens to people when they have this perceived freedom. They get this incredible windfall of money that allows them to have this freedom. Do you know that about 70% of people that win some kind of lump sum in the lottery ultimately end up broke? Typically worse off than before. I mean, I read, I read horrifying, terrible, gut-wrenching stories of what perceived freedom did to people. It turned out it was slavery. It was no freedom at all. Broken relationships, lost assets, terrible, terrible consequences for spouses and children, drugs, all kinds of horrible things. You know what happened? That freedom was used as an opportunity for the flesh. And Paul says, you know what? There's something more. The real freedom that you have is to love others to serve one another through love and in fact he says he can say this boldly that this is the whole law is everything and he presupposes this that that this is what it means to have a relationship with god why don't he say love your god with all your heart soul mind and strength he knows that these believers know that that is the essence of what it means to be in christ but he's saying in order to live that out it looks like loving your neighbor not biting one another, not attacking one another, not devouring one another, not competing for a place or standing in the world because you're trying to earn your salvation because you don't ultimately believe in what Christ has done for you. And he says, forget about it. Don't do this. Trust in, rest in, sit in, enjoy the freedom of what Christ has done for you. Christ has freed you not to go do more stuff. Christ has freed you to be free. And if we grasp that and we know that, then we can't help but love others. We will be so enamored with the grace and the mercy that has been afforded us in Jesus that we will just love others. But we need to be reminded. We need to be reminded. You need to be reminded. I need to be reminded this morning. And I've had the benefit and the grace and the mercy of being reminded about this all week that we're free. We're truly free. There is a spiritual windfall that has come upon us. In Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection, you and I are free. And that means that we don't live a life out of requirement anymore. We live it out of response of the cross, out of response to an empty tomb, out of response to a Savior who loved us. And for all of us that want to know, what does it look like? How do I, am I making the right decision? Am I loving well? Am I doing the right thing? Am I caring for others? And what does it mean to be a Christian? Am I reading enough? Am I praying enough? Am I doing enough? Love is the litmus test. Look at our lives. Are we loving others? Are we giving generously? Are we praying for others? Are we meeting the needs of others? Because here's the reality for us. We have in the church now something similar to circumcision, but it's different for us. There's something, there is a thing that in so many ways keeps us from trusting in, from resting in grace. And what is that? Quite frankly, I think for me and you and probably a number of us, that thing would be spiritual disciplines. We would look at our life and our past and our history and faith and we'd look back and say, man, am I reading the Bible enough? Am I praying enough? Am I fasting enough? Nobody's doing that. 
Am I doing these things right? Am I getting it right? And Jesus himself would say to you, I've done it all for you. Do this out of response for what I've done. It's not a list of extra stuff to do. And you and I need to know that. You need to know that if you don't read your Bible today or tomorrow or the next, that God is not mad at you. And I think you don't believe that because it's hard for me to believe too. God's not mad at me. I'm free. I'm free to, this is nuts. It feels like this is nuts. I'm free to not read the Bible. People are already like Googling, what other churches in Chelsea are? (laughs) But I'm free. You know why? That is not a requirement of me. Do you know what? You know why I want to dive into the scriptures? Because it helps you understand who God is and his love for me and what he's done for me. So, brother and sister, this morning, you need to know that you're free. And you need to know that it's not a requirement. God has not put this on you in some way, shape, or form where there's a penalty to pay, but you and I have the freedom now to live out a response to go love others because of what Christ has done for us. And ultimately, that's going to be the thing that reveals to us. That's the litmus test of our faith. Who are we? Man, are we people that love? Our faith works through our love. So people will see our faith as they see our love. No better way, no better option, no better opportunity this morning than to come taste and see and experience the love that God has given us than through coming to the table. That through receiving the Lord's Supper together. So this morning I'm going to ask our elders uh, and deacons that are coming to these tables this morning uh, to, to take the opportunity to come and serve this meal. I want to tell you a couple things about this meal. All right? Number one. Circumcision, the ability to, to, to produce spiritual disciplines, all those things do not make you re- kind of have the ability to come to this table. You know what qualifies you for this table? A recognition of the fact that you need this, of your sin, of your brokenness, that you've trusted in Jesus Christ and now you come to celebrate this morning as one believer who professes their faith. And you get to come and experience, to taste and see, to take these words of proclamation that Christ has died for you, that Christ has risen, and that Christ will come again. This morning, we come to this table, as Paul describes in this passage, with future hope. But we also come in the present reality of brothers and sisters. Look around you this morning. Like Actually, look around you. You're looking at me. Nobody's looking around. Look around. Look around. Look around. Look at the people that you're gathered with. These brothers and sisters. This meal is a meal of fellowship where we say together that Christ has redeemed us. It's a community table. I don't know about you, but the worst meals I've ever had in my life, no matter what the quality of the food was, the worst meals I've ever had are meals that I've had alone. Meals that I've had by myself. I would encourage you to the best of your ability to love your neighbor this morning and look and see if there's anybody around you that you don't know or, man, bring them to the table with you. 
This is my challenge, my urge to you this morning, to come and receive and experience the freedom that you have. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. Neither do I. But thanks be to God, because of what Christ has done for us, we can dine together. Amen? All right. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray together, and then you come to the table as you, as you wish. Um, this morning's unique. Normally, uh, we, we have, we have our, our band and instrumentalists and Paxton and our team leading us. And this morning, we're going to have songs play over us, but in a communal effort to just share communion with them and be a part of this moment with them, they're going to take communion with us. So it'll, it might look different up here, uh, but that's okay. And we're really actually deeply excited about that moment so that they can take part with us. Uh, if you will, bow your head and let's pray together and enjoy this meal. Heavenly Father, we are free uninhibited, completely free because of what you've done for us. Our spiritual life is not marked by what we do, but what you've done. And so this morning, we come to the table to celebrate that. We get a tangible representation this morning, Father, of your, your son's body broken for us. The blood of the new covenant shed for us for the forgiveness, the very remission of our sins. Father, we celebrate that this morning. God, I pray for those that are professing believers that come to this table, that they would leave this table truly, Father, knowing that they are free in you, free to respond out of love because of the way that you have first loved us. And Father, for those that would not come to this table, those that have yet to trust in you, Father, I pray that you would continue to work and draw those to belief and to fellowship with us. Father, we pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.